<laughs> like, yeah, you're right. Why does it matter to me? And in this instance, I think climate change begs the question, if the majority of people do believe that it's real and man-made and spells the literal doom of the planet, why can't we convince anyone to do shit about it? Extra, extra, read all about it. Podcast tackles controversies that define your world. Listen to Indubitably now. Extra, extra, read all about it. Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode of Indubitably. In case you forgot, we haven't reminded you in a while. I'm Josh. And I'm Kelly. And today we've got our third, I think. Yeah, I think third. Third adjudication episode. Our previous episodes that we can remember. We've done so many now. Mm. There may be more. Who knows? (laughs) But we did episodes previously on gun control and a discussion on whether or not God exists. Not necessarily that we were advocating one way or the other, but evaluating the arguments that surrounded these issues. Mm -hmm. We choose this format when, for some reason, a debate that's happening out in the real world that we think is important is sort of impossible to have in good faith. (laughs) The arguments for whether or not God exists, for example, are rooted in a lack of observable evidence, and that makes it impossible to build them in a logically sound fashion. And with that, the adjudication episodes themselves are focusing on these arguments in the best possible light that there can be on either side of the topic and analyzing the arguments in a way that divorces ourselves from some of the impartiality and irrationality that surround these highly controversial topics. Which is in contrast, I think, to most of the episodes we do where we have the debate or at least have a discussion in which we present the best possible arguments on both sides. But on these topics, it's kind of hard to do that because those arguments can be so flawed in one way or another. Today's subject certainly falls into that category, and today we'll be discussing climate change. Climate change. Is that that thing that might be happening but might not be happening? Oh, are you a skeptic? (laughs) No, I can't even pretend. (laughs) And that's what makes this episode hard to have a good faith debate about, because there is a lot of discourse out there that is identifying climate change as a thing that is happening doesn't really require adjudication. Whether or not climate change is real is not the argument that we'll be judging today. That's just a fact. That's an interesting departure from the way that a lot of the framework has been around the climate change debate. Most of the debate seems to be pretty evenly pitched against whether or not it's real. Mm -hmm. Apparently, at least in America, I, I don't think it's the same in the rest of the world, but in America, one out of four people don't believe in climate change. But to uh, quote John Oliver, one of my favorites, you don't really need people's opinions on a fact. You might as well ask their opinion on which number is bigger, 15 or 5? Or um, do owls exist? Or are there hats? John Oliver, 2019, Michael Scott. Wayne Gretzky. (laughs) But despite the fact that most of the debate we think we see on, you know, 24-hour news networks is 
spurious, there is actually some legitimate debate happening around climate change that seems to be lost amid that controversy. And it's not about whether or not climate change is happening. Exactly. There's legitimate questions around how much control do we have over this? Who bears responsibility for it? What should we do about it? And while we will not be judging whether or not climate change is real, we will be adjudicating the arguments around these questions. We also have a second part to today's episode. In previous episodes, we have focused on judging the quality of argumentation in terms of logical reasoning or empirical evidence. But there is another aspect of argumentation that's almost more important in terms of effectiveness, and that is persuasiveness. Yeah, an argument can be perfectly logically sound and have empirical evidence and still no one cares about it. <laughs> like, yeah, you're right. Why does it matter to me? And in this instance, I think climate change begs the question, if the majority of people do believe that it's real and man-made and spells the literal doom of the planet, why can't we convince anyone to do shit about it? The failure of the climate change is real side comes not in their logic or evidence. It comes in their inability to galvanize real action. Before we examine the messaging being used to try and recruit people to the cause, Let's go through our first set of questions to help us identify exactly what and how we are dealing with here. And I know we said we wouldn't adjudicate this topic, but I think it definitely is worth spending a bit of time just discussing. And that is the question of, is climate change real, right? Specifically, if it's so obviously happening, why is there such a resistance to the idea? I'd say a pretty big contributor to why people don't accept climate change is happening or as severe as scientists are painting it to be is that a lot of people are comfortable. Most people still experience seasons and have things like air conditioning and comfortable lives and can buy all the consumer goods they want. So why would they accept that that is something that could be lost at any time when it seems kind of enduring to live in this like capitalist paradise where they get whatever they want whenever they want it and they don't really feel like super hot all the time? Mm. To start this idea of adjudicating the persuasiveness or efficacy of arguments, I think that you bring up an interesting point because just the fact that we've shifted the name to climate change Remember, not that long ago, it was global warming. I think within the last couple of years, it was global warming. And then somebody came out and said, well, if the globe is warming, why is there all this snow <laughs> outside my window? And the scientific community or the political community or whoever's in charge of marketing climate change decided, yeah, maybe global warming is not the appropriate term to be using because it doesn't fall in line with some of the experiences that people are having. And so rather than the world is getting warmer, they said the climate is changing. But I think the narrative is starting to shift where people are understanding that it is not just things are warming, which is, as you say, true and irrefutable, but we're starting to get each other's weather in a way that we didn't really get before. We're starting to see desertification in places that were previously like really lush. I know that I'm experiencing effects of global warming 
in the Pacific Northwest where we're having very hot, very dry summers and a lot of forest fires as a result of that in a way we've never seen before. But other places are seeing inundations of rain that they've never seen before, which is just so abnormal. We're starting to see a lot of really strange weather patterns all around the world. And therefore, I think that the shift to the term climate change away from global warming is definitely one that's effective and helps tackle maybe the first resistance that people might have to the idea that it's real. The second one, and again, this is largely an American-centric concept here, but this is where I think a lot of climate skepticism is rooted compared to the rest of the world, is just the ties of a particular political party to whether climate change is real or not real. Well, we all know that the Republican Party is not really believing much about climate change or doing much about it. But even the Democrats, you campaign on these ideas of doing better for the environment, but for the sake of political expediency, are very quickly compromising on those things when it comes to a lot of legislation because there's other more immediate concerns that they're trying to secure. So it's not just that the failure of a two-party system, it's a failure of politics altogether. True, but I, I definitely think that the two-party system exacerbates it. So to cite a poll that was done by Pew Research, even though this is essentially a poll on whether or not owls exist, um, conservative Republicans, only 14% believe that human activity contributes a great deal to climate change. 39% say that we contribute some to climate change, but 45% believe that human activity either doesn't contribute much or doesn't contribute at all to climate change. And if you compare that to liberal Democrats, 84% believe that human activity contributes a great deal to climate change. And only 3% say that it contributes not much or not at all. So it's hard to deny that there's a political bend to this. And I, I refuse to believe that Republicans are just worse at science, but I think that they have been put in a situation where to be a Republican means that you need to take certain positions on certain things, and this is one of them. Pretty rich from the facts don't care about your feelings crowd. I mean. I kind of agree with them on that one, but you know, I also think that another potential explanation here for why that particular party has this particular view is because there's definitely a level of corporate interest tied to resisting transitions to green technology. And a lot of the industries that typically identify with the Republican Party, oil being one of them, have some of the most extreme interests in resisting a shift away from fossil fuels. And potentially that's where their quote unquote belief, again, I don't think they actually believe it, but I think that's just how they vote, might stem from. And part of that is just the refusal to accept how immediate the concerns of climate change might actually be, that corporate interests and money just have such a bigger presence and more short-term benefit than thinking about long-term climate sustainability. We'll definitely talk about the dichotomy between environmental protection and economic development later. And on that scale, certainly conservatives are on the side of economic development. Surprise. 
But I'm not letting the Democrats off the hook here either because they also use it as a political issue. And I think that in large part, that forces a weaponization of the topic. Democrats are just as responsible for making this a partisan issue when it doesn't necessarily have to be. And now our planet is literally this huge beach ball that's being batted back and forth between the two sides instead of something that they could be working together to fix, considering we're all going to die if the planet goes down. So are you saying that Democrats might be like disingenuous about the things that they campaign on and advocate for just to garner public support? No, I, I think that they are very genuine as long as it falls in line with what they think will get them votes. Okay. Yeah. I'm pretty skeptical about how much they actually care about these things in the same sense that I don't think that Republicans care much about the climate when money is on the line. I think the Democrats are using it more as exclusively a beach ball rather than actively doing much to resolve the issue. Right. And that's where I I use the term weaponization. And at the point where one party weaponizes it as a tool to get votes and the other party pushes back a because we have a two party system and they just have to disagree with anything the other side says b potentially they give into corporate interests that want to resist green technology the end result of all of that is climate change being seen as something that is disingenuous starting to wonder if there's anything that any politician on either side of the political spectrum would just take as fact and not make it something that is to be garnered for votes. I know how you feel about it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So another big reason here, and this is definitely related to the fact that the topic has been politicized, is when people see climate change discussed in the general media, in the news, because these sources strive to be at least they say, they strive to be balanced. Most debates about climate change are one versus one. One side representing a conservative view that says climate change might not be a thing. One side representing the view of the scientific community saying climate change is definitely a thing. And when you look at that on the screen, it makes it seem as though this is a balanced debate, which makes it seem as though the side that says climate change is not real is a legitimate side. But in reality, we know that it's actually not representative to see a 1v1 on all of these news programs, that a more accurate representation of the belief of the scientific community is more like a 97 to 3 debate. Right. 97% of the scientific research out there says that A, climate change is real, and B, human beings contribute to it. And 3%, who knows? Yeah, I got a question for that 3% people. Are they kind of like the same one out of the five dentists that wouldn't recommend Trident? (laughs) Let's see the crossover, the Venn diagram between dentists that don't recommend Trident and scientists who think the earth is flat (laughs) and climate change is not real. Yikes. Well, I bet people do go to Bob Jones University with science degrees on the mind too. And then the last reason I think that people might question the reality of climate change is there is a confusing lack of certainty in terms of the way scientists talk about 
the timeline and the severity of the impacts of climate change, right? So we have everything from the climate will get warmer by 0.2 degrees over the next 50 years to the whole planet's going to be destroyed tomorrow. And while we have 97% of scientists saying that climate change is real, we have almost no consensus on when or how serious the impacts of it are going to be. January 3rd, 2055, the planet will be too hot. (laughs) How many episodes of Indubitably will be published by then? 2055, will I even be alive still? Yeah, we got this. Yeah, totally. People look to science for certainty and definitive answers. And the fact that climate science right now can at best give us projections and estimates means that people have doubts as to whether or not there's any credence to the idea as a whole. We talked about the shift from global warming to climate change, and I think that's a really good example of of the lack of certainty as far as exactly how climate change will play out, where by the planet warming overall, things actually get colder in certain places for certain periods of time. Very difficult to predict exactly what this will look like in 5, 15, 50 years. But it's important that the messaging from the scientific community is clear as far as just because we don't have a level of specificity on these projections doesn't mean that we have a lack of certainty about whether or not it's real. And I don't think they're doing a great job getting their messaging clear on that point. They should employ people like us whose job it is to help clarify and advocate specific positions. Maybe they could use us for some marketing. I got to see what they pay first. Probably better than this. (laughs) It is the liberal side, though. Oh, well, then not much then. Maybe if it's unionized. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, the emotional roller coaster (laughs) as to how much our new career is going to pay. At the end of this, I think the point as we adjudicate this issue, is yes, climate change is real, but it being real, the lack of agreement on that exists for this variety of reasons. And without getting those things cleared up, it's going to be really difficult to gain consensus or garner buy-in in terms of action items, etc., to actually solve this problem. Well, let's say that We're bought in. We believe it's happening. We know that even with a lack of certainty about the actual date or specific temperature that things will change by, we agree climate change is actually happening. The next question is then how much control do we actually have over it? Yeah. Do we have the capacity to fix this? And again, there's no clear narrative to this. How does me using paper straws regrow that shrinking ice flow that the polar bear is standing on. I'm not sure if there's going to be much you can do about the polar bears with your paper straws, but at least that paper straw is probably not going to wind up up the nose of a tortoise or something. Then the tortoise is going to die in five years when the water's too hot for it anyway. Yeah. But those five years, no matter the material of our boba straw, We are not guaranteed that that Herculean effort on our part is actually going to lower the temperature of the planet. And that's an argument that 
the pro-climate change is real side. I guess that's the cleanest way to describe them. How would we label that side? Uh, Save the planet, Greenpeace. Greenpeace, yeah. I think the only people who believe in climate change are just called Greenpeace. All right, so the Greenpeace side, (laughs) just because this is a problem doesn't mean that we can fix it. They're telling us how terrible it is, but as catastrophic as this issue is, according to them, if I bring my own bag to the grocery store, it's cured. Doesn't seem like very sound reasoning. A lot of the debate has turned to very small individual actions and whether or not they actually constitute any meaningful change. And that's the second question, I think, and and one of the more pertinent ones is, who bears responsibility? A lot of this has been pushed on individuals when, in reality, I think that a lot of it lies with countries or, preeminently, corporations. Aha, my favorite villains. Yes, excellent. (laughs) But individuals do, do things that can have negative impacts on the environment. Individuals drive the way that corporations and countries behave. I think my issue here, though, is if we're adjudicating the arguments and the and the rhetoric that's out there in society, there is so much rhetoric around this is what you as an individual need to do to protect the environment, and so little rhetoric around this is what you as a country, U.S., China, or you as a corporation, BP, Amazon, Amazon, can do to protect the environment. Yeah, absolutely. There's been a ton of shift from these major polluters. We know they are major polluters to individual action and putting the onus on all of the consumers that engage with those systems as being the ones who ultimately are responsible for so many of the major ills. So how dare you drink your boba with a plastic straw? Meanwhile, how much carbon is coming off of Amazon's production and and shipping and distribution. That two-day shipping, though. Yeah, I canceled my Prime account. So again, I'm a better person than everybody else. (laughs) Oh, my God. So this is an interesting argument to analyze, though. And maybe the answer is both, to answer my question before I ask it. But is all of this push for individual responsibility a legitimate position, a legitimate stance that's being taken? or Is it marketing on behalf of governments and corporations, a typical divide and conquer, you know, set the people amongst themselves so that they forget the fact that we're the real villains here? I think we see that a lot in marketing. Like there are car companies that say for every Subaru sold during the month of December, we'll donate so much to tree replanting efforts. And it's like, Subaru, you could just do that. And it seems as though corporates and governments only take responsibility when it's convenient for them. When environmental protection falls in line with a profit motive, then all of a sudden they're Team Greenpeace, as we have affectionately labeled that side. We need a name for the other side now, though. The anti-Greenpeace? Black Death. Isn't the opposite of Greenpeace like whalers? Oh, I would have said Magenta War. Is that too literal? (laughs) That's actually, that's really good. (laughs) Like red is opposite green on the color wheel. Mm -hmm. You got it. (laughs) All right. So team Greenpeace versus team magenta 
Whalers War. <laughs> Back to who bears responsibility. Another example of this where personal responsibility is being levied is when we're told not to eat meat. I know that's something you don't do. I know that there's environmental benefits of that. But if governments and corporations were so serious about reducing the amount of meat that was eaten, why don't they ban meat? Why don't they shut down factory farms? Well, there is still consumer demand. People want meat, and there's always going to be a capitalist motive to fulfill demand because there is profit associated with it. So if you were the politician that proposed to deban it, you would get backlash, not convenient for you. If you were the company that sold it, you're in that industry and you shut down, not convenient for you. So they don't want to change the way that they go about doing things, but we are supposed to. Well, there is a point to the idea that corporations are just out there meeting demand. I would say there's also probably an argument that points to corporations helping shape demand. There is marketing, there is a persuasiveness to it, but we are seeing that there is some effect in the shift of public demand away from actual meat to meat substitutes in a way that there hasn't been before. And that is changing the industry somewhat. So it is possible that corporations will incidentally adopt more environmentally friendly practices if there's a profit motive associated with it. Mm. And we'll talk a bit later towards the end of the episode about potential solutions, but maybe what you're saying is validating for the idea that individuals do need to take responsibility. And that would be the concept that individuals can put the kind of pressure necessary on corporations and governments to get them to change their ways. All right. So we believe climate change is real. Let's say side green piece that says we have some control over it is winning the debate. And we've identified who is responsible for enacting that control, trying to regrow our ice flows so that polar bear can finally... <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure where they were trying to go, how they got stuck there. But, you know, without that picture, we wouldn't know anything about climate change. So those things have been established. Now the question is, what do we do about it? What are some arguments in terms of suggestions for action items that we can take? And are they legitimate or not? One of the major issues with the entire climate change debate is that the framing around the conversation has been that environmental protection is diametrically opposed to economic development. And that isn't necessarily true, but it feels true with how people are discussing it. There's definitely arguments here that are legitimate on both sides of that question. There is a legitimate argument that says we do have to curb economic development for the sake of environmental protection. The easiest one is probably to look at fossil fuel emissions, pollution that comes from factories. In order to reduce pollution, we need to, at the very least, spend money to modernize factories and reduce their emissions. Same thing with cars, same things with transportation, etc. Or if not, shut down factories completely to reduce emissions. So there's some fairly clear logic that would suggest if we want to protect the environment, we do need to curb economic development. But there's also a case to be made for those two seemingly competing forces to work in concert with each other. 
there is an increasing demand from industry to have greener practices. And there are even ways that it saves money for corporations to do things the cleaner way. True. And that would be where corporations want to draw the line in terms of their efforts in regards to environmental protection. I guess the question there is if you're going to make that argument, you would need to show that efforts that fall under that line, where a company can at the same time make more money and help protect the environment, that that would do enough to reverse the effects of climate change. And I'm certainly not sure that that standard has been met. No, it's probably a piece of the puzzle, but it's not the entire picture to say that it's just about the environmental practices of major corporations. Another argument that doesn't apply to the US, doesn't apply to Europe, but we just did an episode on African development where we we talked about this a bit, is the more developed a country is, the more that they can do for the environment. Regions of the world and, and countries that have yet to fully develop are in the middle of their industrial stage curbing their economic development for immediate environmental protection benefits might be a mistake as opposed to pushing through those stages. Yes, maybe they're going to pollute a little bit more, but then once you reach a certain level of development, you have the capacity to transition over to green technology, et cetera, in a way that I think Europe serves as a good model for and the United States doesn't. Absolutely. We could say that the countries in Africa which are trying to develop using things like fossil fuels shouldn't be allowed to do that. And then we'll be dooming a lot of people to a life of electricity from generators fueled by diesel. And that's definitely not great for the environment. Or we can accept the short-term temporary setback of having these countries develop using fossil fuels for a future where they're using geothermal, hydroelectric, wind power for their electrical needs. And that might be an acceptable trade-off to sacrifice a little in the short term for better long-term benefits. And when you say short-term versus long-term, I think that's another important point that as much as we might agree that climate change is real, as much as we might agree that it's going to cause some serious problems for the planet in X amount of years, the side that talks about that in absolute terms and doesn't accept any compromise, ignores the short-term trade-offs that exist. A country that is diverting funds to environmental efforts doesn't have those same funds for social programs that feed people, that house people, etc. Industries that are closed down because they might be too polluting of the environment also means a loss of jobs that people use to feed themselves and house themselves, etc. And certainly in many countries and even many cities within developed countries, these short-term trade-offs matter. These are people's lives. And as much as we're going to have to deal with the consequences of this long-term, maybe we can't just be sacrificing people randomly now because of this thing that we're worried about in the future. The dominant rhetoric we're hearing from a lot of people who, the Greenpeace side, if you will, believe that climate change is the problem, we have the power to solve it, is extremely absolutist and does not take into account a lot of the context and the nuance of other circumstances. A lot of this preaching comes from a position of having 
gone through an industrialization and being in the position where it's easy to afford alternative energy sources, where there are government programs, especially in places like Europe, that prioritize the environment, there are a lot of places who can't get to that point in their development without going through an initial struggle period, costly period environmentally first. Well, and I don't even hear that side acknowledging the sacrifices that have to be made. And again, this kind of goes back to corporate and government responsibility versus individual responsibility. But what you will hear is, and we just did this a couple minutes ago, so acknowledging that, but what you will hear is we need to save the environment and these governments and corporations are so big, they can definitely afford to make the sacrifices necessary. But really rarely from that side do you hear how will this impact individual people if those policies are undertaken or if those corporations go under or are forced to close factories, etc. And that's a very real consequence. And I think just in terms of us adjudicating argumentation and deciding how quality it is, arguments that completely ignore the ramifications of its logical conclusion are not incredibly high quality. People have to take care of their needs in in the status quo with whatever they have available to them, in addition to also considering whether or not they're impacting the environment adversely. It's a very complicated position to be in. To reference one of the things we talked about earlier again, without a clear timeline on when and how climate change will affect the world or specific regions of the world in what specific way, it's also very difficult to weigh out when a company goes under and these people lose their jobs, what are they going to do to feed their families versus when the ocean level rises on this beach community, they're going to lose their homes as they sink. And how are these people going to house their family? So with the uncertainty around the future that climate change has in store for us, it's hard to weigh these things out, which in terms makes it difficult to put forward any effective argument on what do we do about this problem? We'll send everybody glass boba straws. As difficult as it is to weigh these things out, though, I do think that there are some actions that most everybody agree would be useful in terms of combating climate change. And this brings us to part two of the episode, where as opposed to looking at the logic or the evidence behind the arguments, we're going to talk about the persuasiveness of the messaging. Like if those things exist and we know what they are, why don't we do them? When we're looking at the persuasiveness in particular, of the climate change argument and the calls to action, there is the psychological component of people wanting to act in their own self-interest and how there seems to be very little appeal to self-interest when it comes to working for the collective good, especially because so much of what we think about climate change seems indeterminate and remote and nonspecific. At this point, we're asking people to compromise their own comfort and well-being for some sort of amorphous, impossible, potentially, conclusion that we can't really predict. On this topic in particular, 
There's a book by Norwegian psychologist Per Espen Stoknes. And according to Per Espen, who is presumably Team Greenpeace, there are five main barriers to accepting the gravity of climate change. They are doom, distance, dissonance, denial, and identity. And I think denial and identity are pretty well covered in the first half of this episode, where we talk about some of the flaws in argumentation as it's presented in public discourse. But the other three, I think, are definitely worth covering here, where we talk about why the messaging is not particularly persuasive. Why don't we start with doom? Because I kind of like that one. Doom has been a very prevalent theme in a lot of the climate change discourse because we've been told so many times by so many people that if we don't do anything to stop every single carbon emission at this exact moment right now, then we are forever going to feel the effects of climate change and there's nothing we can ever do about it. And that leaves a lot of people saying, well, it's impossible to stop everything that emits carbon right now. So what the hell's the point? Definitely in terms of persuasiveness, fatalism isn't enough and not particularly effective. If you tell people that there's no hope, then they don't really have a reason to put in an effort. They're sort of just like, you know what, let's just make the best of it until we die. I'm just going to be comfortable and run out the clock. This writing was from 2015. And I think the rhetoric about doom from that era is pretty spot on. But we have seen that people are applying some more nuance to the actual fatalistic approach towards climate change. We are seeing a lot more climate scientists pointing to promising numbers that show that temperatures are increasing at a declining rate, for instance, and people saying that even small measures do have merit to pursue. We may not be able to absolutely prevent climate change, but we will be able to do things that lessen its overall impact or mitigate it. And the the framing around this particular issue is starting to shift, but I don't think it's quite there yet. I still think that doom is a pretty prominent factor in the discussion. And also I wonder if people got the messaging wrong in the beginning, and they push this doom narrative early on, then does walking it back actually help, right? Once people have stopped caring, it's very hard to get them to change their mind and start caring again. And also, if you've tried to tell them that this is such a serious problem, end of the world, etc., and then you walk it back and say, hey, we're actually doing pretty great with it, does it just lessen your credibility? And now you have a whole nother thing to deal with in terms of why people aren't finding you persuasive. It seems a little bit like the switch from global warming to climate change, that there's still some lagging skepticism about that. And there probably is some lagging skepticism when the narrative changes from doom to just dire. Isn't Mount Dire where the hobbits had to go to to destroy the One Ring? Oh, that was Mount Doom, wasn't it? Maybe the journey would have been more reasonable if it had been Mount Dyer. (laughs) So Doom was number one. Distance is number two. And the challenge that the concept of distance poses here in terms of the persuasiveness of Greenpeace is 
all of the impacts of climate change are still remote. That could either be chronologically further in the future or further from us geographically. But people just don't care about stuff that's not immediate to them. Exactly. We've been hearing a lot about small island nations that are losing meters of shoreline every year to the ocean. And that's sad. But I don't live that near the coast. So it's okay. Right now, I don't see any immediate impacts of climate change. And everybody's telling me that, oh, in like 2100, everything's going to be terrible. I'm probably not going to be alive for that. So this all seems really remote. And why should I care? I spend a lot of time outdoors and I can't really say if my summers have been getting hotter. I think they have, but I also remember some really hot summers in the past. And so personally, I don't think I've experienced any impact of climate change to the point of distance. It is really hard to ask me to sacrifice anything substantial, more than a paper straw, for a cause that I have not experienced in any way, shape, or form. And I think that I am probably representative of the vast majority of people on the planet, at least people on the planet that have a large enough carbon footprint to where they could potentially make some sort of impact on this problem. Again, this writing was from seven years ago. And there are people who are now experiencing much more extreme weather patterns than ever before that I think is starting to shift the narrative. The Pacific Northwest, in 2021, we had a heat dome where we hit record high temperatures over 110 degrees for multiple days. This summer, 2022, we had multiple days that were well over 100. And this is an entire region that was built with homes that had no air conditioning because It was rare to get into the high 80s in the summer most of the time. So even if people here are a a bit skeptical about whether or not climate change is happening, they cannot deny that summers are incredibly more uncomfortable here. And that is starting to, I think, persuade people who may have been on the fence before. And again, rhetorically, there's a shift here also where as opposed to these massive doomsday scenarios that are coming but in a intangible amount of time, there is more talk about the ways in which it is affecting us now. So rhetoricians, politicians, activists, whoever uh, is trying to convince us here, is choosing to talk about less serious, more realistic issues that are happening on a much shorter time frame. And that does seem to be more effective. But... The the rhetoric around distance, I think, is still the predominant thing that prevents a lot of people from being driven to immediate action, not just because like a few uncomfortable summers is not that big of a deal, but because there are so many other pressing concerns that are so much more important to a lot of people than thinking about seasonal temperature fluctuations and what happens 50 to 100 years from now. And a lot of that is economic. A lot of that is just figuring out the day-to-day and making sure that they've got enough to eat and that they're well-employed and taking care of their familial obligations. It does still have a lot of 
abstract distance from our current lives to make it just not a very pressing concern that is fueling a lot of our decisions day to day. Mm, So we have doom, we have distance, and third, we want to talk about dissonance. What does dissonance mean? Dissonance is a psychological discomfort that a lot of people experience when they know and recognize that climate change is a problem, but they also know and recognize within themselves that they're not doing enough to personally resolve it, whatever enough means. And then reconciling that dissonance by saying something along the lines of things that I've said before, which is, okay, I still use plastic straws, but at least I'm not taking a private jet to fly like 20 minutes like Kylie Jenner does. This is certainly an understandable sentiment to have, especially considering a lot of what we talked about earlier in terms of governmental actions or corporate actions. And I mean, I literally said this earlier in the episode where why should we have to bear the brunt of this as individuals when the vast majority of the problem is rooted and the vast majority of the capacity to fix the problem exists in governmental or corporate hands. I think the real issue with dissonance is that most people individually are not really going to make a big difference one way or the other. And the only way that we as individuals are going to make an appreciable difference when it comes to climate change is if we all collectively do the right thing together. But we know that not only do other people in our similar circumstances not do the right thing, there are people who make much worse of an impact doing the wrong thing all of the time, which is really discouraging. And that leads to a couple of other psychological phenomena, I suppose, besides these three Ds that we've been discussing. One of them being the tragedy of the commons. And related to what you're saying, basically, if there's a common resource, the planet, whether it's disappearing or not, or maybe especially when it's disappearing, our psychology is, well, I want to get as much out of it as possible myself before somebody else takes all of it, and then it's gone or destroyed, etc. If the tragedy of the commons doesn't apply to this, I don't know where it applies to. Basically, there's no real emphasis on my individual effort being worth doing. So if everybody else is going to get to do whatever they want, and no one's going to check their actions, why shouldn't I do what I want? What I want to do is be a polluter, because it's easy and fun, and it's profitable. And it's inevitable. If I don't do it, somebody else will. So I might as well benefit from it. Yep. Related to this is the idea of a collective action problem. And That is a situation in which all individuals would be better off cooperating, as in, if we had an earth, we'd all be better off, but fail to do so because of conflicting interests between individuals. And those conflicting interests discourage joint action. And here we see lack of cooperation between nations. There was just COP22 that happened where All the nations got together and told us all the things that they swear they're going to do about the environment. And of course, none of those things, if climate summits of the past are any indication, are actually going to come to fruition because countries are 
looking out for themselves and their own conflicting interests, even though if all countries were to cooperate, we'd all be better off. Man, humans are selfish. But not Kelly. No, I I think I'm pretty selfish. Socialist. I'll be a socialist when everybody else is a socialist. All of these issues, the three Ds and the collection of human selfish psychology that we've just discussed are challenges that anyone trying to convince people or galvanize action over climate change are going to have to overcome if they want to be persuasive. And and so far, they don't seem to have done a great job, minus some tweaks here and there in terms of the name of this phenomenon from global warming to climate change, or some strategic tweaks being less fatalistic, focusing more on now versus future issues, etc. But certainly hasn't reached the level that it needs to, to apparently save our planet. All of that being said, there are potential solutions, or at least actions that individuals can take that could make a difference when it comes to climate change. So what are those particular things that we could do that might make a difference? And to analyze that, we have a list that was provided by Imperial College London, but a lot of other advocates have similar suggestions for what we as people can do to try to actively tackle climate change. And if you can't tell, I'm already skeptical right off the bat of any list that tells people rather than governments or companies how they can solve this problem. But I'll give you the chance to list some of these things. All right, let's launch into it. The first one is to eat less meat and dairy, either going with smaller portions, maybe meatless Mondays, going all the way vegan, what have you. Overall, just eating less meat and dairy. This one on an on a purely individual level, I don't buy it. But the vegan movement, or at least vegetarian movement, has been growing. And what you pointed to earlier, the kind of pressure that that's putting on various industries, allowing for the uprising of meat alternative industries and the downsizing of factory farming, deforestation, all of the related issues, etc., does seem to be making a tangible impact in at least one area of climate destruction. So yeah, this one might have some validity behind it. I begrudgingly say, as I think about the bacon I'm going to have tomorrow morning. I know you love your bacon, but eating less meat and dairy is something that a lot of people can do that will overall have some impact. And generally speaking, doesn't involve too much personal sacrifice. Mm. I mean, your love for bacon aside, I know. Mm -hmm. But there's a pretty satisfying way to eat a less meat-heavy diet and still have a fulfilling life. I hope you know that. All right, fine, fine, I get it. The the next three suggestions that Imperial College London have, I'm less on board with. One would be cut back on flying, use video conferencing instead for work, buy carbon offsets if you can't avoid a flight, etc. Two would be leave the car at home, bike and walk when possible, get a vehicle with lower emissions when driving is needed. C or 3 depending on if I use numbers or letters to describe two or B, (laughs) I forgot now, reduce your energy use and bills, use LED lights, put on a sweater, etc. Not convinced in any way, shape, or form 
that any of these things have enough impact on an individual level as opposed to just being a cop-out by governments who don't want to pass legislation to achieve these things or corporations who don't want to hurt their profit margin to deal with these things. Addressing the flying one first, most people don't fly very much as individuals. They might take a couple of major trips in their lifetime. And generally speaking, they're not going to be major draws on the overall climate. I think this is more addressing people who are constantly flying for work or for pleasure or have private jets. And that seems pretty reasonable. When it comes to leaving the car at home, that one, let's point out that this list was made by a college from England where walkable cities are much more available to a lot of people. But reducing your energy use, that is something that I think a lot of people really can do. I'm on peak time billing with my energy usage. So I turn off my heater from 5 p.m. to 9 p.m., which is, yes, not fun, but I have sweaters and blankets and cats, so it's okay. It's not that big of a deal. What about the next one here? This is something you might, I don't know, I think you might be a little bit of a capitalist, at least compared to me. This suggestion is to invest your money responsibly. So choosing ethical banks, making sure the investments you make are not going to big polluters, uh, redressing your banking system altogether to choose to go through only green companies with their investments and avoid the polluters altogether, only buying stock in companies with favorable environmental practices, essentially voting with your wallet, but not just in a consumer context, in an investment context. Right. I'm going to take this one and group it up with the last two. So here, I like what you said, voting with your wallet. The next one would be make your voice heard by those in power vote, contact leaders, lobby, petition, etc. So this is voting with your vote. And then last would be talk about the changes you make. Tell your friends and families what you're doing to help mitigate environmental harms and why it's important. And to me, what all three of these have in common is it is an individual action that tries to grow itself. You try to spread your action away from just yourself as an individual and into those other categories that we've been talking about. You can affect the corporations that have a real ability to impact climate change. You can affect politicians that have a real ability to impact climate change. And in terms of telling friends and family, even though this happens at an individual level, it is more than just you as one individual. You are attempting to galvanize multiple individuals. So in an episode about what is the effectiveness of argumentation in terms of logical consistency, empirical evidence around climate change and what we can do in an episode about the persuasiveness of climate change and the arguments and the efforts that are being made by people to galvanize the public. When we get to solutions, I think that these are the three that probably deal with those concepts the most efficiently. Take action yourself but make sure that the actions you take grow upwards through the system. I take your point with a couple of these, but the talking about the changes you make actually like proselytizing to your friends and family, I think it's going to alienate more people than it's going to endear them to your position. 
let me tell you, my family is pretty sick of my veganism. Are you saying that talking to a group of people and letting them know what a good person you are is potentially not an effective tool of persuasion? I didn't come here to make friends. I came here to feel good about myself and I accomplished that. (laughs) Well, I came here to save the environment because I'm a good person. So there. Okay. Okay. In all seriousness, I do think that recognizing the psychological challenges and then just real world functional barriers that stand between us and, if possible, a world that is able to survive this phenomenon of climate change, these are the ones that hold the most promise to me in my completely unscientific opinion. Well, to quote Will Arnett, the jury's still out on science. (laughs) Not an expert in science, but arguably an expert on persuasion. And at the end of the day, these are the things that I find most persuasive. Fair enough. What about you? Do you think any of these are solutions that A, would be accepted by anybody, B, by enough anybody's, and C, by enough anybody's that have the capacity to actually make a difference in climate change? Or are we screwed? We're screwed. (laughs) And indubitably out. (laughs) Up until we find a way to make it very appealing and very self-serving to care about climate change, to put money back in people's pockets, to increase their comfort and quality of life, by caring about the climate, if we can make those things happen, we can appeal to the selfishness of the individual and make the climate better in the process. Until we can achieve that harmonious balance, I don't see how we're going to make any progress. And I look forward to a future in which I'm going to have to live in like a hyperbaric air-conditioned container. As long as there's YouTube, I'll be okay. Well, to hear whether or not Kelly and I are correct on our predictions surrounding climate change. Tune in in 2055 when we post our episode on who gets to go to Mars as the Earth collapses. Until then, I think I'm sick of talking about things that make me sad and depressed. So join us next time where we talk about human rights abuses as it relates to the World Cup. Oh, they're taking your favorite thing, soccer, and ruining it. Yeah, soccer does a pretty good job of ruining itself, I'll be honest. (laughs) Oh, don't... Kelly, that's the one thing you can't get jaded on. Your love of soccer. Oh, we'll see. Join us next week and see if my soul is crushed entirely. (laughs) All right. Next week, FIFA, World Cup, Qatar. Talk to you all then. Bye.